few weeks ago, we read the account of the raising of Lazarus, and it was part one in a two-part series. Let me refresh your memory. You remember the story, or the account, as I would rather call it, of the raising of Lazarus. Jesus came to that village. His good friend had died. He'd waited two days. He arrived at the village, and the two sisters of Lazarus came out to meet him. And they both said the same thing. If you'd been here, this, this wouldn't have had to happen. And one looked in his eyes and said it, and he gave her some very wonderful theological statements about who he was, the resurrection and the life. The other threw herself at his feet and wept on them. And Jesus responded by weeping with her and going to the tomb, calling forth Lazarus, their brother. And he came out of that grave, still bound up in his grave clothes. And Jesus, so practically minded, not uh, interested in spectacles, simply said, take the grave clothes off of him and unbind him. The point of the account in the Gospel of John is that Jesus, who is the life, confronts death, and death cannot stand in his presence. It cannot stand. And John, all through his great Gospel, is calling us to Jesus, who is the life, who bursts the bonds of death, who brings people out of tombs, I wanted to use this as a metaphor. I don't think the primary purpose of John was to use this metaphor, though I think it was in his thinking, that even when life grips us from the insides and shatters us out of death, even the death of our own making, not maybe physical death, but maybe the death of wrong thinking or wrong actions or wrong attitudes, when Jesus brings us to life, we still have some grave clothes around us. We have life, we're growing, but the grave clothes need to be stripped off. And we looked at one, I said there were going to be two elements of the grave clothes that I wanted to deal with. And the first was trite, I mean shoddy thinking. And the second, which we'll explore today, is trite loving. Shoddy thinking and trite loving. I read from Pascal on the shoddy thinking, and he said there are only three types of people, and I quote, those who found God and serve him, some of you are that. Some of you found God and you're serving him. And then the second type is those who are busy seeking him, but they haven't found him. Some of you are that. Even though you may have arrived here at college with the faith of your parents, you're seeking to figure out if this faith is real for you, and not just students faculty alike and staff, because on the journey of life we have to keep seeking and keep growing, who are busy seeking, but have not found him. That's the second type. And the third type, those who live without either seeking or finding him. And I hope that none of you are that type, though I fear some of you are. You can go through religious motions without seeking Christ. You can believe in theological formulae about Jesus, formulae doctrines that are true about him, and still not be a seeker. 
And that's why Peter Kreeft, as I quoted last time, said this. Or actually, Pascal said this, and then Peter Kreeft commented on it. Pascal says, Truth is so obscured nowadays and lies so well hidden that unless we love the truth, we shall never recognize it. And Peter Kreeft, the 20th century philosopher, says this, The absolute distinction which will become the distinction between the heavenly and the hellish is not between believers and unbelievers, but between seekers and non-seekers. The great divide is between seekers or lovers and non-seekers or non-lovers of the truth. For God is truth, and if we do not love the truth, we will not seek it. So in the first half of this talk, I encouraged you to become seekers, passionate seekers of the truth. And I suggested that you develop insatiable and creative curiosity. That you be driven by a desire to know. That you have more questions than answers. That you develop a humility toward your own grasp of the truth. And a respect toward others who are further down the road in their pursuit of the truth. That you develop a childlike, not a childish attitude, a childlike attitude that says, Why? 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 Jesus is the Christ. Why? Jesus died for your sins. Why? How? For what? When? What does it mean today? I suggested that you avoid the error of skepticism, the person who's always seeking what isn't true and trying to point it out to everyone. Skeptics become experts in spotting what isn't true. They seem to be trained in tearing down but not building up. I suggested that you be open to the truth from any place and that you be suspicious of a claim of complete truth from any one place. And I summarize those in three disciplines. Humility, a passionate desire to know, and discipline. The ability to keep seeking even when you don't feel like it. Now let's say some of you took me up on that. And you decided to unwind some of the grave clothes of your thinking, which has become shoddy or maybe has never become full of the life of Christ. C.S. Lewis says, you know, if you're coming to Christ, you have to come brains and all. You don't set your brains to the side to follow Jesus Christ. Quite the opposite. But it's interesting that the consequence of growing in truth is not only truth. And this is a tricky part. And this is what I want you to catch. Growing in truth does not mean just stacking up more truth. Or more knowledge. The growth in truth will always lead, if it's truly truth, will always lead to a life of love. A life that is truly loving. Thomas Merton said, what is knowledge that does not lead to love? And Paul himself said, if I can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge but have not love, I'm not anything. I amount to nothing. So how do we move from seeking truth into a life of love that is true, that is actual, that works, that is effective, not just affective? Because not all that passes for love is true. 
Not all that passes for love is love. In fact, some of what I see passing on this campus for love is actually destructive. It's actually non-love. Love has to be thoughtful. We don't set our brains aside when we come to Christ. Neither are we to set our brains aside when we try to be loving. Can a certain type of love be destructive? Augustine had an interesting quote which I heard on the senior retreat this uh, weekend, which was a, a great experience, by the way. Love without knowledge leads astray, Augustine said. Knowledge without love puffs up. But knowledge with love builds up. Or love with knowledge builds up. Let me read that again. Love without knowledge leads astray. Knowledge without love puffs up. Love with knowledge builds up. Let me give you an example of that. Last time I read a section from The Great Divorce to illustrate bad thinking. When thinking had gone bad. You remember the story? It's a story, of a, 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 a fictitious story, a fantasy of a bus ride from hell to heaven. The great divorce between hell and heaven. And in the story, C.S. Lewis has these people from hell get to go to heaven and meet someone they knew in their former life. And then they get a chance to decide if they want to stay. And he has a wonderful image that is a deep, uh, has deep theological insight in it. And that is that the people from hell were like ghosts. They were unsubstantial. And the people in heaven were solid. In fact, the wood in heaven was so solid that there would be no way to pick this up. It would weigh a million pounds in heaven because it would be so much more substantial than a, than a pulpit on the earth or even less a pulpit in hell, of which there are probably many. And you'll remember that the, the last time we talked about this, there was a theologian who came from hell up to heaven. We have it on Jesus' authority that not all theologians will be in heaven. He talked to some of them in his lifetime and compared them to unmarked graves. So C.S. Lewis takes that image, brings the theologian to heaven, and gives him a chance to stay in heaven, and he turns it down because he wants to go back to hell to lead a Bible study, a theological discussion, actually. He needs to be needed. He didn't really love the truth. He just loved discussing concepts. So that's where thinking had gone bad. Now I'd like to read one where loving had gone bad. Where loving, what passes for loving, is actually destructive. Again, when we read stories, be childlike in your experience of the story. Enter into it. You'll have to decide to. This is about a four-minute reading. You have to decide to do it, but don't be childish. Don't set your brains aside when you're listening to the story. Figure out what it means. The context is that a visitor has come to heaven and he's been joined by his mentor. And the mentor's name is George MacDonald. George MacDonald happened to be C.S. Lewis's literary mentor. And most, myself included, would say this is an image of C.S. Lewis meeting his mentor in heaven. He posits that he was in hell and given a second chance. 
he meets his uh, mentor, and the mentor takes him, and they sit by the side, and they watch an exchange between a ghost-like woman from hell and a person that she meets in heaven, who's called the bright spirit. And here we pick up the story. The author speaking here, he's sitting with his mentor. One of the most painful meetings we witnessed was between a woman's ghost and a bright spirit who had apparently in life been her brother. The ghost saw the brother. Oh, Reginald, it's you, is it? Yes, dear, said the spirit. I, I, I know you expected someone else. Can you? I, I hope you can be a little glad to see even me, for the present at least. Well, I did think Michael would have come. He is up here, isn't he? The bright spirit replied, yes, but he's up there. He's far up in the mountains. Well, why hasn't he come to meet me? Didn't he know? The spirit replied, my dear, don't worry. It will all come right presently. It wouldn't have done for Michael to meet you. Not yet. He, he wouldn't be able to see or hear you as you are at present. You'd be totally invisible to Michael. But, but we'll soon build you up. The ghost replied, I should have thought if you could see me, my own son could. The spirit replied, you'll become solid enough for Michael to perceive you when you learn to want someone else besides Michael. I don't say more than Michael, and not as a beginning. That, that'll come later. It's only a little germ of the desire for God that we need to start the process. The ghost-like woman said, oh, you mean religion, that sort of thing. This hardly seems the moment. And from you of all people. Well, never mind, I'll do whatever it takes. The spirit said, Pam, do think. Don't you see you're not beginning at all as long as you're in that state of mind? You're treating God only as a means to Michael. But the whole thickening treatment consists in learning to want God for his own sake. Well, you wouldn't talk to me like that if you were a mother. If God loved me, he'd let me see my boy. If he loved me, why did he take Michael from me? I wasn't going to say anything about that, but it's pretty hard to forgive, you know. Spirit replied, but he, he had to take Michael away, partly for Michael's sake. And God wanted your merely instinctive love for your child to turn into something better. He, he wanted you to love Michael as he, God himself, does. He, he wanted your merely instinctive love for your child to turn into something better. And the only remedy was to take away the object of your love. It was a case for surgery. Then there was just a chance that in the loneliness and the silence, something else might begin to grow. The ghost cried out, It's a lie! It's a wicked, cruel lie! How could anyone love their son more than I did? Haven't I lived only for his memory all these years? The spirit replied, That was rather a mistake, Pam. 
In your heart of hearts, you know it was all the ten years of ritual grief, keeping his room exactly as he left it, keeping anniversaries, refusing to leave that house, though Dick and Muriel were both wretched there. The ghost sneered and said, Oh, of course, I'm wrong. Everything I say and do is wrong according to you. But of course, said the spirit, shining with love and mirth so that my eyes watching this were dazzled. But of course, that's what we all find when we reach this country. We've all been wrong. That's the great joke. There's no need to go on pretending one was right. After that, we begin living. How dare you laugh about it, screeched the ghost mother. Give me my boy, do you hear? I don't care about your rules, your regulations. I don't believe in a God who keeps mother and son apart. I believe in a God of love. No one has the right to come between me and my son, not even God. Tell him that to his face. I want my boy. I mean to have him. He's mine. Do you understand? Mine, mine, mine forever and ever. Then my teacher, laying his hand on my arm, said, Come, we'll go away a bit further. Why did you bring me away, sir, I asked. It might have taken a long while, that conversation, said my teacher. And you've heard enough to see what the choice is. Is there any hope for her, sir? I asked. Aye, there's some. What she calls her love for her son has turned into a poor, prickly, astringent sort of thing. But there's still a wee spark of something that's not just herself in it. That might be blown into a flame. Someone must say in general what's been unsaid among your kind this many a year, that love as mortals understand the word isn't enough. Every natural love will rise again and live forever in this country, but none will rise again until it's been buried. My teacher and I move further up and further in as we continued our conversation. It's a fascinating story, isn't it? Mother love gone wrong. What could be more holy than the love of a mother for her child? But if it is a thoughtless love, if it is not a thoughtful love, it can actually be destructive and a destruction itself. How do we love God with all of our minds and with all of our hearts and with all of our souls and with all of our strength? How do we love our neighbors as ourselves? Just to say we feel love isn't enough. In counseling, I deal with this all the time. In families, where what it goes for love is actually destroying the family and destroying individuals. Let me suggest three possibilities. There are thousands. The first is that we learn to be true friends to one another. True friends. You know, it's interesting that Jesus never called the disciples friends until he'd been with them for three years. 
And on his deathbed, so to speak, at the Last Supper, he said, I don't call you servants anymore because a servant doesn't know the heart of his master, doesn't know his intentions. But now I call you friends. Friendship is something deep. Friendship is something that is nurtured and grows through discipline and thoughtfulness. Jesus saved that word till he'd been with the disciples for three years. How do we develop truly loving friendships? First, let me suggest that we need to learn to speak the truth in love. Second, we need to learn to see the truth. And third, we need to live in the truth. How do we speak the truth in love? Paul says this in Ephesians 4. He said, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we'll no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into Christ, for it is in Him that the whole body grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Instead, speaking the truth in love. Watching the Super Bowl yesterday, there was an add-on for a movie. Apparently, the thrust of this movie is going to be about a person for three days who can do nothing but say what is true, which is an interesting concept. And it shows him in this little cut from the movie, walking around, you know, saying things that would be very inappropriate socially, but they are true. Dostoevsky takes that theme in his book, The Idiot, and he has the idiot be the Christ figure. And the idiot only speaks what's true, but unlike apparently the movie that's coming out, not not on Dostoevsky's novel, but unlike this uh, comedy coming out, the idiot in Dostoevsky's novel speaks the truth in love. How would we speak the truth in love? Jesus spoke the truth in love to Martha when Martha said, Lord, tell my sister to come and help me in the kitchen. He said, you worry about so many things, Martha. And Mary doesn't. He rebuked Martha softly. But he did not give in. He spoke the truth in love. Jesus spoke the truth in love to Peter when he spun around, pointed at Peter in the face and said, Get behind me, Satan. Because you see things from man's point of view, not from God's. That was spoken in love. Jesus spoke to the Pharisees in love when he called them whitewashed tombs. Jesus spoke to Peter later in love when he said, Peter, do you love me? And he gave him three times to rescind the thrice-time denial of his Lord. Jesus spoke the truth to the adulterous woman. Jesus spoke the truth wherever he went, but he did it in love. Do you notice that sometimes he did loving things in anger and sometimes in softness? That should tell us something about love. If we're going to be truly loving, thoughtfully loving, there are moments when we will probably need to speak with anger. There are moments when we'll need to refrain from speaking. It's not a simple thing, loving. You don't set your brains aside when you begin to do it. 
The second point is that we see and move on the same truth. Now that assumes that you're a passionate seeker of truth to begin with. And it assumes that you know someone else well enough to realize that both of you, as C.S. Lewis puts it in The Four Loves, are seeing the same thing in the same way. And a true friendship develops because of your pursuit of the truth. He says it's a wonderful moment when you meet someone and they can say, I see what you see. And you begin to move toward it together. Lewis says lovers are always looking at one another face to face, but friends are always moving side by side onto a greater truth. That assumes that you're seeking the truth and that you've developed friendships deep enough to know when and if they're moving on the same truth. And the third point, speaking the truth, seeing the truth, and I would call this living the truth. Hebrews 10 says this, that we're supposed to meet together in order to stir one another up to love and to good works. It doesn't say don't neglect the meeting of yourselves together for discussion about the Bible passages. It doesn't say don't forsake the gathering of yourselves together to learn some new rituals. It says don't forsake the gathering of yourselves together and stir one another up.